Welcome to another episode of DevCast. I'm Will Nichols, and today CTO Yimi Oshinaye and Director of Technology Adam D'Angelo stopped by for an animated discussion about the challenges of technology procurement. They also dropped some hard-won knowledge about the importance of user input when designing systems. Frankly, I wasn't sure how to make an entertaining episode about government contracting and procurement, but these guys managed to do it. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did. Procurement and delivery, I think, aren't on the same page. They haven't, procurement hasn't caught up with delivery, and I think delivery doesn't pay enough attention to the procurement process because the procurement process is built to alleviate risk. It's built to get folks what they want and to protect against individual desires, right? It's about the organization getting it. So you have a CEO who's independent, takes all the feedback, puts it together, puts it out, and then you want to have open competition. So that's what it's built for. But when you have things that are so specific, it just doesn't work in that environment. We had been doing some work for a customer, and we'd been doing a great job for years. I mean, it was one of those where they kind of trusted us to do the right thing and, and make improvements, and we did. And, and, uh, and it worked out well for a long time. And then we took on this big high-profile initiative, and then all of a sudden we're under the microscope of the entire CIO organization, and, and we were still continuing to do a good job. But now there were a lot of individuals saying, well, hey, um, specifically, what are you guys doing now versus here? And when are you delivering it? We want it now, and we want these things. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And there were, there were no contract words written to that effect, right? So everybody wound up in a really bad place where the CEO wasn't involved early on. So we got these meetings together with um, you know, C-level officers, the contract officers, you know, and, and the project teams and the, on the, you know, the government side and our side. And I think everybody said, all right, look, well, we, we all left ourselves a little bit exposed on this, um, but it's hard to enforce a contract when there's no verbiage in there, right? And I think getting those contracts, so my point is, now we try to get the contract officers, especially for this program, involved on everything. Um, when there are a lot of unknowns and there's a lot of risk, I think it's important for both sides to make sure that they have the right language in that contract. Right. Um, and there's definitely a lot of interesting writing going on right now around agile procurement yep. and using the FAR um, to allow for kind of mistakes and to be, you know, implemented in the, in the field, you know, making those experimentation errors and changing quickly Um, because you're right I think that process has been slow um, at evolving maybe the slowest part and probably one of the biggest hindrances down here in the federal space of moving to agile moving to DevOps um, might be around the procurement process I think so I think so so contract processes in general are hard to be agile because the contract in and of itself is, is a binding agreement for a length of time right so if I shorten the length of time then I subject myself to doing that long process over and over again. So a six-month contract doesn't help us find staff. It doesn't help us give confidence in folks that they want to work for us. And then, you know, it may help that agile feedback cycle, but it doesn't help for the continuation of the program. So it's almost like you want to have a, I mean, you don't want to call it options. You, you have a contract with iteration so that you can change it. So that's really not called a mod. It's like having a, a, a modable time period, right? So if I have a contract for two years, Every three months, I go into a modable time period where changes are accepted and expected, and it'll change what the next three months are. But then there's a fear that a contractor will come in and say, you know, here are my terms today. 
In three months, I'm going to totally change my terms so it makes my job easier and I don't deliver. And so so it's, it's, it's difficult because that is part of the government's protection. Right. I know you've been on the government side of that. I mean, I think from the dev technology side, I think we've always kind of <laughs> bent over backwards to yeah. do whatever the customer yeah. has wanted. So it's tough for me to understand that perspective of, oh, yeah, well, it's not on paper, so we're going to say no to you. I mean, I think one of, one of our biggest problems is we, we never say no. Yep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which leads to a lot of long hours. But I, you know, I think that that's establishing that trust and being part of that high trust culture moving forward, which we talked about in our DevOps segment. Um, but you know, going back to procurement, I mean, I think one of the things that's been encouraging to me is seeing a lot of RFIs come out where they're requesting information for, hey, what's the best contract type? You know, how should we structure this? And I think the government is really actively working with vendors to say, hey, how can we do this so we're both protected? We can make mistakes. We could try to achieve greater agility um, moving forward. And you know, this works for you. This works for us. And you know, I think. I think we're seeing a lot of that. I'm not. I'm not sure we're there yet. I think everybody's still figuring that out, though. I agree. I think you know you've got the uh, procurement innovation lab and DHS. You've got different things coming out with different terms. Uh, but but I agree we're not there yet. I I think there needs to be teams that actually openly talk about what it is you want in contracting. Like for example, you know, if the agile process were to go and we we built a contracting around that process. Um, you're going to have some vulnerabilities, but how do I protect myself? Like for once, you just mentioned, like Dev always puts their best foot forward and doesn't say no. Well, I'm not going to put a percentage on it, but that's not every contractor. And you're right, from the government side, I've seen contractors come in and say, we'll do this, and, and they don't do any of it. So if that's going to be the case, then you need a litmus test up front of who the right people are. I don't know if it's past performance. I mean, do we give you a quiz? I mean, do we give you a lie detector test or something where, you know, we know that that contractor has a high trust environment and they can help us with our high trust environment being a government. And then together we can go and now I can have a contract where the, where the terms change every three months because I know that's my, you know, iteration. So, uh, but that's, I mean, we have to get real creative to make that work. And there has to be ways of figuring out who to trust. Yeah, I think there's some folks in the the federal space are doing some interesting work about this. I mean, I've spoken to you about uh, Jonathan Mostowski. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think he's over, you know, U.S. Digital Services, and he also has his own organization called Agile Acquisitions. He does um, a YouTube video series called uh, Agile Acquisitions and Alcohol. Um, not together. Uh, together, yeah, yeah, together. Um, oh, well, I, I'm not sure he's writing contracts while drinking, but he's talking about them at there the very go. least. Um, which gives me an idea for our, our next podcast, Yemi. That's an awesome idea. Yeah, yeah, I'm in. Whatever it is we're talking about, and alcohol. Yes. Um, <laughs> Karen, is that in the budget? She said yes. She said yes. No. That's a good. We just made a decision. That was agile. I, I, I want you to know that was collaborative. Continuous improvement. <laughs> <laughs> but but Jonathan does a great job of speaking some of the challenges in doing agile acquisitions um, and, and talks to many of these things. So definitely want to give him a shout out here. We'll have to try to see if we can link to some of his content yeah, because that'd be awesome. Um, I, I enjoy all of his uh, seri- all of his series. Yeah, so yeah, I, I think one good thing, even if we pull him into this, is a conversation around. Um, procuring sprints. I mean, I, I talked about the concept as a federal employee, and I've been out for a year and some change, haven't really had the chance to talk about it as, as a vendor or the system integrator. 
Um, you know, how does that feel? I think procuring sprints, I mean, you can procure them in bulk. Do you procure them where I have a guarantee five sprints and a possible 30 sprints? Uh, you know, is the sprint, do I tie the sprint around technology? I mean, it goes back to the concept of buying teams, but on a, on a granular level, I mean, maybe that's a, another way of being a little bit more agile on procurements. Yeah, that stuff can be a little bit challenging, though, you know, thinking from our side as the vendor now, right? I mean, how do you have a team that you can only guarantee five sprints to, right? You know, we, we take a lot of risk in hiring individuals who we, you know, trust to do a good job. And sometimes, you know, projects fail and not because of the contract team. Sometimes they, they do. There's many reasons, right? right? But at the same time, you know, these are people's lives, right? So it's hard to hire people and say, hey, we have about three months worth of work for you and maybe some work after that if everybody thinks you're doing a good job. Right. You know, that, that's a challenging situation to be in or to put other people in, right? right. So, so how do you deal with that as a contract officer then? No, I mean, I think as a contract officer, if, if you're in the idea phase of this, I think now you start to talk about if the issue for the vendor community is consistency of hiring, then we need some long-term guarantees for hiring just so you can actually get the right, because you want to get quality people too, right? Get quality people, but then you have to have some short-term version or some validation period for work and then a, a period where you can change terms or change the work. Because, I mean, let's use like Capital One or Target. Target actually switched. It's a good story. I think they switched to have in-house developers where they were actually contracting. So they brought the developers in-house. Now the government's not going to do that right now because they don't have the infrastructure for it, but you hire a team of developers and I'm just going to hire them for three years because those are going to be my developers, but I want to be able to change their work on and off. And I think maybe there's where the CEO can say, all right, you're going to be developers. You work for me. I hire, I'll hire you, but I'm not going to hire you to do X. I'm going to hire you to be developers with this skill set, uh, your high trust environment. You're going to do DevOps and you're working in this environment. And I can throw different things at you, but leave the contract open enough that you can switch that around. So basically not saying, hey, you're working on this program. This is where you are for the next five years, including option years. You're but instead of hiring them as, hey, you're one of our agile teams and we know we're going to have work for you over the course of a contract period. Right. And you're going to just work on whatever project we ask you to work on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's a, I think that's a little bit of what CIS was doing. Uh, um, I think they're still in the program phase, but I think now you're starting to move the pendulum into the area where now we're, we're hiring agile teams. Uh, so the difference, I think, with some of the, the ones that just hire agile teams to say... Also, I'm you're not supposed to say we're anymore because you're now with Dev Technology. Yeah, you're still oh, saying geez. that. It takes yeah. a long time. I know. <laughs> On behalf of Kendall, I'm going to yell at you oh. for that. <laughs> and Kendall gets to listen to this, so she'll yell at me later. I know. Yeah, okay, so there. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, so, you know, for them, they have to actually hire the teams that can put their solutioning hat on, too. So we don't just want to go in and just start banging away the keyboard. You know, each iteration or each engagement within this contract, I go and I go in because we talked about the value stream, right? We want to go ahead and re-engage at the value stream and say, I want to know what the problem is. I want to know what the points of engagement are. I want to know what the system is and then build. Right. I, no, I, th I think you're absolutely right there. And, you know, you and I have spoken about this, but not on a podcast before is user experience. Yes. And I think that's really 
I mean, I think it's the current state of things in the in the commercial sector, but I think here in the federal space, we haven't gotten to there as fast as I would like, where we're viewing everything as the user experience, right? Yeah. Um, it's starting with that journey map saying, what is, what is it actually like for a user to perform a process, right? Look at re-engineering a process. Right. Um, what does the user interface look like? And all those things. You know, How long do they have to wait? How many button clicks are there? There are a lot of systems that clearly... <laughs> or in production today that do not take any of those things into account, right? right? And I think it's kind of developing a better user experience um, is part of what a lot of these new agile teams are going yeah. to need to be able to provide moving forward. Um, and we're starting to see a little bit of that yeah. in some of the RFPs coming out, but not a, not as much as I would think. Yeah, I, th I think it would be good to take clients and walk through like complementary UX, uh, at least building a journey map, UX experiences, because... There is a epiphany sometimes when you have a journey map and you walk through that process because there are things about your system or your process that you haven't seen or you don't know. Uh, I've seen that firsthand where you're walking through and they say, well, did you know this is part of your process? And you go, well, no, I, I never knew that because you just haven't, and you do it so much that you haven't seen the value stream. And so when the value stream is put in as a journey map, you're like, wow, well, here's now where I can change it because it's actually been brought to light. So I, I, that's, those are important things. Right, we were doing, we were, uh, you know, just talking about that agile modernization project we were doing a little bit ago. And towards the end of that, um, one of our kind of uh, customer meetings came up and they were telling us about um, this process they had, this manual process where they would download a, a particular report from the system that had a lot of you know, PII in it and they'd upload it to some other server and you know, extract data from it. And this server was something that the whole IT organization, the government IT organization didn't really know about. There was no ATO around the reporting <laughs> tool on it. Um, it was outside of every security boundary. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, I, I definitely remember being in a meeting with um, deputy CIO and she basically kind of walked out with her fingers in her ears saying, <laughs> I, I didn't hear anything about it. Just fix it. <laughs> we did. We fixed it. There you go. Yep. <laughs> the death classic. Yeah. Yeah. But you're, but you're right. You don't know where yeah. the bodies are until you start getting your users in the room yep. and, you know, talking to them. Hey, really, what is it that you do here? It, it you know, here we are inside the beltway, but we have, um, customers who we support at different field offices and all, all around the country, you know, and s sometimes around the world. Um, and what is it that they're doing there? What is their process there? How are we de designing a system here inside the Beltway where we have no idea what it's like to use it uh, on the ground in um, Tallahassee, right? We don't know. You know, th there, there are realities to using a system that sometimes developers or, look, even, you know, the IT shops here, within the federal space, they're not aware of. And I think it's really understanding the mission yeah. um, and that user experience journey that um, needs to take some focus in developing a better system. No, I agree. That's one of the things that drew, draws me to IT is that solving a real problem. I mean, you can't solve it by sitting back and drawing on a wiper without getting into the problem itself and understanding like all the environmental factors of the problem. So I, it, you couldn't be more right. Yeah. I mean, I started as a developer and, you know, for years I just wanted to write code and, you know, had a great time just writing code, right? I got to be left by myself. Um, <laughs> and I remember we wrote this system and it was, it was a great system, you know, had a, a great purpose. It was part of, um, you know, that uh, the paperless act that was passed and we helped to remove a whole bunch of different paper from, you know, the a particular federal process and uh, got out to the field to support the users. And there's a part of the process that we never really 
understood um, when we were actually doing this as a waterfall project. It was, it was, it was really lovely. <laughs> um, so you'd think in the, the five yeah. months I spent writing requirements, documents, and design documents that somehow this would have come up, but obviously it didn't. So we spent the next couple of years building a system. We deployed it to production. We get out there to support it in the field. And um, the process is initiated, right? We had, we're sitting by the user. They're typing into the screen. All's going well. They hit submit. And then they say, anyway, I so, said, you know, now what? Say, well, we have to wait. Well, what are we waiting for? Well, um, I have to wait for the guy on the other side to, you know, pick up this message I sent, which is fine because that was built into the system. But then the next part was that individual on the other side needed to fax something over to a different office and then receive a response before responding to our message. And Basically, we were told, well, you know, how long does that take? And they're like, well, it just depends if anybody's checking the fax machine that day. <laughs> <laughs> right? So talk about yeah, user experience. Yeah. Here I am sitting there and, you know, as a, as a consultant sitting in this office with my team. Yeah. And we're sitting there for six hours before the message was finally responded to in, in a process that could have happened in about 10 minutes, wow. you know. Yeah. Uh, what an opportunity for improvement. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I don't want to say that was the first time I realized yeah. that user experience is essential to developing a software system, but but that one resonated with me for sure. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think every time, you know, I help to design and develop a system moving forward, I think it really asking the users, how are you really going to use this is really the first question, not just, hey, I'm going to build a system for you and you're going to like it. There seems to be that mentality sometimes. No, no, absolutely. And you bring up a great point of like that headquarter versus field kind of perspective. I mean, the person that's using the system, it's always great for them to actually be the one to help develop the system. Because if you are not touching it every day, you don't know the little nuances. I mean, a lot of those folks, I mean, it's muscle memory. So, you know, as we're in all the headquarters there, you know, folks are working with the client and we're writing things up. Uh, you know, we need the person that knows the pain, the daily pain of the system. I mean, I think that was the idea behind the product owner, not the proxy owner. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yep. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Speaking of that muscle memory, have you, I don't know if you've ever been, you know, really a part of a mainframe modernization project, but you'd be surprised how many individuals who are using the mainframe really love it. It's tough to convince them that they need to move to something else. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, because you have, I mean, they're function keys, right? It's 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 almost like you know we talked about when we were buying these Macs, and I have the Touch Bar, and how Sean said, you know, I don't want the Touch Bar, I like my keys because to get screens on a the mainframe, there's it's the two touch, two touch, I mean, it's a flat database, everything is searchable. Why would I change to something as complex as like an Oracle database? Sorry, Oracle. <laughs> Why do I want to do that? I have my screens in front of me, and I can do a screen capture and copy it into something else. So when you ask them to change, they go, oh, you can keep that. <laughs> they just don't understand that, that we're, we're not you know, building these Cobalt and Fortran developers anymore, that the, we need to move off of that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, training users is very difficult. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If I graduated from college tomorrow and was hired into the federal workspace and was told, okay, well, you're going to do your job, you know, using this green screen application. <laughs> oh, my God. I'd head for the hills. Yeah. For, no, first we head for the hills. You put it on Instagram and say, look what they look asked me this. to do. <laughs> <laughs> they, they must be crazy. Now I'm heading for the hills. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's very true. I mean, that, that uh, there are a lot of folks. Good folks that spend a lot of time in the federal government that, you know, as you're changing things, you have to take a good, long, hard thought about what you're going to change them to. 
and make sure there's there's an adoption component or that the system kind of transitions well because uh, that is how they do their work i mean you talk about the mission i mean that's part of the mission part of the mission is supporting the people that do it yeah you know there's another side to that as well though i mean you know i've been a part of quite a few modernization projects over the years some within the federal space some with uh in the commercial sector and the biggest mistakes are always around frequently around lift and shift, mm. right? Where's this idea of we're just going to take this mainframe application and build it in a web with a web front end. Um, where, you know, to me, that's a mistake. I think you need to look at the business process you're supporting because the business process that was developed around this mainframe application, what, 20 years old? Pretty much. Probably. <laughs> You know, maybe maybe it's time to revise your business process. Why are you still doing business today the same way you were doing it 20 years ago? You know, we talked about this in our podcast on on DevOps, where these you know great organizations, you know these American institutions, you know Toys R Us most recently closing shop, right? They they did not figure out how to compete in this new market, and some of that is just not updating the way you're doing business. And you know, even in the the federal space where you don't really have competition, you know, you, you, you do, right? You're, you're, you're trying to hire a good workforce. You're trying to support your end users as the, you know, the federal IT organization. So it's a little bit different in terms of how you're going to view the value that your organization organization's creating, but focusing on the business process yeah. and, and how your users should be doing work is essential to modernizing a system. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I think that's an evolution for a lot of system integrators because uh, around the beltway, I mean, you mentioned a couple of times around the beltway, there are folks that will do the same thing over and over and over again. We know how to modernize you. Let's get you into this cookie cutter process. I'm going to take your mainframe. I'm going to make it look really pretty. I'm not going to ask you how to make it look pretty, but I'll make it look pretty and it'll have these buttons on there, but I'm not going to go in and streamline your process because there are probably things in the process you don't need anymore. Uh, and, and that's, I think that has to start to be a core part of what people do, kind of like we do here. Uh, but it, it, it ruins transformation and adoption because folks think transformation is only technical. Transformation, in my opinion, is far more business related, far more culture and organization related than it is the IT portion. The IT portion enables all that. But, I mean, you really have to focus on, you know, what is happening in the process. And you're right. There is competition. I mean, you've got competition over how you deliver something. And there are – everyone has an option. Even if the option is not to use you, <laughs> that's an option. That's an option. So you're competing against apathy, right? <laughs> Sometimes that's a tough competition. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> you know, talking about good design, um, my, my wife was on vacation, not vacation. She was out in California recently for her brother's wedding. Um, my two-year-old son and I did not go, but she would uh, send video messages so I could play them for our son. And, you know, I would show him these messages on my iPhone. And after one of these videos ended, two years old, and he doesn't get screen time. I've never left him alone with my phone. He, very quickly, he figured out how to swipe to another video, how to push the arrow to play the video. Uh, and I was just immediately impressed. And, and not with how, how brilliant my son is. He obviously is brilliant, you know, right? But, but with how intuitive the design is, right? I mean, I think it's one of the things that we, as you know, Apple users, uh, know and really enjoy about their products. But you know, to see a two-year-old immediately pick this up and be able to use it shows that there's a great user experience there that's very intuitive. Um, and, and that's something that's not always true about 
software that we've developed in the past, right? Um, user experience has not been considered the, the most important aspect of it. Design, you know, forget about design. How many years, you know, and we're obviously going to date ourselves with this, did we have those giant beige boxes? Oh, Lord, yes. Sitting under our desk or on <laughs> yeah. our desk since we're computer guys, right? Oh, yes. Um, there were eyesores. You yeah. know, they weren't designed well. No, um, not at all. It was ridiculous. They took up a lot of space. I mean, you couldn't use your space. Now, it's funny you say that because now everything is clear. I mean, a lot of times you go to someone's desk and all they have is their Mac or whatever they have on their desk. But yeah, I mean, it makes sense. And, and, you know, just to give credit to what kind of Steve Jobs is, that was all intentional. I mean, for him, it was art. And it, it was art to see how humans can interact with something digital. And it, 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 he didn't call it a computer. He called it art. So I think, you know, as we move forward, you know, as a community of system integrators, uh, that design, that user experience it's very important. I mean, that is the difference between having, you know, four clicks on a keyboard, moving a mouse and looking at something and sending a fax. Who sends a fax anymore? <laughs> and, and doing that from you literally sending, hitting one button and doing multiple processes at once so that now that individual, instead of waiting for something for six hours, can actually go analyze and do something. Uh, you know, we forget because we focus only on that one component of a system that there's a large ecosystem and you can improve someone's life at the end of it. And, and that's where the focus needs to be. I mean, going back to value streams, if you look at the whole value stream, there's something in it. Yeah, some of those things are a little bit more difficult to measure as well, right? Mm -hmm. And we talked about how important measurement is, but a good user experience, you know, encourages people to use your application. Yeah. It, it keeps people from being frustrated. Um, you know, talk about civic websites or government websites. Um, that's the difference between actually completing a process online and and or not completing that process or calling, um, you know, this the help desk line, right? And, you know, if you don't want to keep manning help desk lines as the federal government. You know, right. that's that's not a business you want no. to be in. Um, so you make it easier for people to complete processes to, you know, whatever it is. It, it CIS is around immigration. Yep. Um, and, and very important, too, if you want to come, you know, at ICE, we support systems having to do with getting student visas. Yep. I mean, you want that to be easy. You yep. want that to be a good process. You don't want people filling out paper to come to this country to to learn and to work and to, you know, be part of the, you know, environment here. I mean, if you make that difficult, that's going to be a problem for you as an yeah, IT integrator, right? Absolutely. I mean, you, you talk about the way the world is advancing, too, because there's something I'm simply just keeping up with human capability. Everything's mobile, right? Everything is done with movement of your fingers now. So if you're going to build a system that includes a lot of typing, then you've already started off wrong. <laughs> If it's not mobile friendly, you probably also already started off wrong. So it, it's just keeping up with what's normal and where we are. I think you have to have that kind of insight to human nature and desire how people want to use systems and their interaction. I mean, there was one thing we had when I was in the government is understanding that our new applicant may already have a computer in their hand when they walk through the door. So we can interact with them many miles before they get into the office. And when they get there, we can make the interaction a little more meaningful because we've already gotten some information. We've already built a relationship. And now we just at the point where now that we're in person, we can handle the things that we need to do in person. Right. You know, I always find it interesting interacting with um, younger 20-somethings um, and how they don't use email anymore, right? You know, I might say, oh, I'll send you an email about that. And I'm like, no, you know, <laughs> send me a text message or, you know, Whatever it is, it's WhatsApp or yeah. <laughs> whatever they're using. Um, 
but it but it changes and understanding who your demographic is understand who who's going to be using your system and look it's going to be a, a variety of individuals right it's going to be everything from probably an 18 year old you know student who might be coming to this country for a visa to somebody who's a bit you know older and up there in years and honestly may not even have access to a computer That's true. so you That's have to true. design systems that you know meet the needs of a lot of different users. And there's a great challenge in that. And I think being an integrator who can understand that and do that is is quite a skill. Yeah, no, I would completely agree with them. I mean, you have to have a mindset, I mean, to even think of it, right? Because most people want to do that one size fits all, but sometimes you have to make a flexible design so that multiple people can use it and then it can evolve. Uh, you're absolutely correct about that. I think that's the way where system development is going to go and it's not going to change anytime soon. Pretty cool. Thanks for listening to DevCast. By the way, dev technology is growing, and that means we're hiring for a variety of positions, including DevOps engineers, SharePoint developers, Java developers, database developers, and system engineers. To learn more about dev technology and to view full job listings, visit devtechnology.com careers. We've been rated as a top workplace by the Washington Post five years in a row based on employee surveys. And here's what application administrator Cindy had to say about working at Dev Technology. I see the company always looking forward at what's coming out in 10 years and thinking, wow, do you think we could develop something like that in six and a half or seven years? Now be sure to follow Dev Technology on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to make sure you're seeing the most recent job openings, as well as blog posts from our subject matter experts and just to see some of the fun stuff our employees are up to around the office. Thanks for listening.